Now, we just finished singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Now, we sang that twice, in a, two Sundays in a row. But the reason we sang it this morning is because today is Reformation Day. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther went to the church in Wittenberg, Germany, which is um, uh, the, the door front, the front door of the church was like the local bulletin board for the neighborhood. If you wanted any announcements or you wanted to make a point about anything or address any subject or get in touch with anybody, then you went down to the church and you tacked something up on the front door. So they at this time had been preceded by uh, several years. There had been a guy named Tetzel who had uh, come up into that area of Germany selling indulgences for the Roman Catholic Church in order to raise money to build St. Uh, Peter's Cathedral in the Vatican. And uh, for every, what was it, for every penny in the coffer's ring, a soul from purgatory springs. That's what he said. And so, Martin Luther, who was a young Augustinian monk in the monastery there and taught theology, had been teaching on Romans. And as he studied the book of Romans in the original languages, something that had not been done for a while, but Erasmus of Rotterdam, a few years earlier, had published a Greek text of the New Testament. And as Luther read and studied in the original languages, he realized the truth that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone, and that you were justified by faith in Christ and not by anything else. And so he wanted to debate a few things. So he nailed 95 debating points called theses, thesis in the singular, theses in the plural, on the door of the church at Wittenberg. And that's what started the Protestant Reformation. So we sang A Mighty Fortress is Our God this morning in honor of Martin Luther and what he did to start the Protestant Reformation. Now, before we get into our study of the Gospel of John, to study a little more about the free offer of salvation and the work that Christ did on the cross, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, if confession is necessary, to make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord, filled with the Spirit, and then we'll begin. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the way you work throughout the ages to bring together the pl- your pl- perfect plan of salvation. That at the perfect time, the fullness of time, the scripture says, the eternal second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father. And Father, we thank you that we can study about his life and his ministry and what he taught through the scriptures that you have revealed to us and in this study of the Gospel of John. Father, we pray as we continue this study, you would continually refine our understanding of the Gospel, that we would come to understand not the Jesus of history or the Jesus of imagination or the Jesus of theology, but we would understand the Jesus who revealed himself to us in the scriptures and that we could be driven to greater worship and obedience because of our clear understanding of who he is and what he did for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the uh, to the eleventh chapter of John. Scripture says that we're to share all things with the one who teaches. Well, somebody has shared the flu germ with me. I don't think that's what the Scripture meant by sharing all things with those who teach. So we're going to try to make it through the second hour as we made it through the first hour. My voice is already growing raspy and dry, so we'll see how far we make it. We have seen in our study of John that a major theme in John's Gospel is that of light. That Jesus is the light of the world, and as He came in the first advent, that His presence and what He taught divided people. As the light shined in the darkness, it forced those who saw Him and those who heard Him to make decisions. They had to decide either for Him or against Him. There was always either a positive acceptance or a negative rejection of the gospel. And John's point is that the gospel always divides people. It is a divisive issue. It is not something that is automatically going to bring people together and harmonize people. It is divisive at its very core. And we see this in all of the things that we have been studying in the last few chapters, that each time Jesus performed one of the signs, and that's one again one of the major, if not the major theme of John, John wrote that these, and in context he's talking about these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in His name. And of course, John also said that in Him was life, and that life was the light of the world. So John's whole point is that Jesus reveals Himself and reveals God to us. He is the only one who has seen the Father, and He is the one who has uh, explained Him to us. Thank you very much. I'm sure that will not be that water will not be <clears throat> prepared as it was with a saline solution by Mr. Sexton several months ago. I don't think that Barry has that kind of Olsen nature trend. But we have restored Jim in gentleness. As per the early hour. Okay, we are looking at John. We see this division. And what we see here is that the same thing over and again, and I really want you to understand how this is. I almost closed in prayer because the clock here hasn't been changed. And I looked down and it was 12.02. So (laughs) I'm really not operating on all cylinders this morning. Even with the extra hour of sleep. We see a basic assumption that a lot of people have is if people today just saw Jesus, if they could just see a miracle, if they just saw the power, that they would believe. Well, thousands of people who saw Jesus, who who spent a lot of time with Jesus, who saw the miracles that He performed and and, uh, the healings that He performed, completely rejected that. You see, facts, sometimes we think that facts are neutral. And that if we can just present the facts, then the facts will convince people. 
Well, all facts are automatically interpreted. That's the nature of the construction of our, of our cognitive faculties. That as soon as we see something, when you see a tree or you see a car or you see an event take place, you immediately filter that through whatever grid you have, whatever frame of reference you have in, your, in the mentality of your soul. And so when it comes down and you look at it, we're always dealing with facts as interpreted. We're never dealing with facts in and of themselves. We automatically interpret the facts. For example, in the last lesson, we went through the first 44 verses of chapter 11 where Jesus resuscitated Lazarus from the dead. It's not a resurrection, it's a resuscitation. Resurrection means that you receive a new body that is no longer subject to death. But Lazarus' body was subject to death. He still had a sin nature. He was still subject to disease and all of the failings and flaws of a corporal body, and he eventually died physically. So he was simply brought back to life. He was not resurrected or given a resurrection body. And it was clear that this was a miracle. He had been in the grave for four days. And it was obvious to one and all that he had died. There was no question. It is not even questioned by the Pharisees when they convene a Sanhedrin council in the subsequent verses. They don't even question the reality of the resuscitation of Lazarus. What they question is what it meant. It's interpretation. Interpretation always has to do with what these facts, what this means, what this situation means, and how are we to understand it. And so even though everyone was faced with the fact of Lazarus walking out of the grave, there were some who interpreted it one way and some who interpreted it another way. And the issue is volition, negative volition or positive volition. And ultimately this starts at the point of God consciousness. As we grow up and we develop, and you can see this, those of you who are, who are moms and dads and you look at your little infants, you know that there comes a time in their development when they're wiggling their feet and they're wiggling their arms and their fingers and all of a sudden they realize that they are connected to those fingers and toes and feet and arms, and they're making those move the way they want them to, and that's called self-consciousness. They begin to develop their own personal identity as distinct from everything else around them. Then you develop an other's consciousness, where you begin to recognize certain people, mom and dad and brothers and sisters, and you have an other's consciousness. And then you reach a point where you recognize that there is something out there. There is something greater than the creation around you, and that that is God. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that everyone reaches this point. God has made it clear. His omnipotent, powerful attributes are clear through the things that He has made because God and God's existence is known because the Scripture says God has made it evident within them. So there's not only an external evidence, but also an internal verification that every single person knows God exists. They, reaches, they reach this point of God consciousness And then they have a decision to make. Positive, I want to know more about God, or negative, I don't. Now, we have already seen through these encounters that Jesus has had with the Pharisees that he has accused them of not even knowing God. In other words, even though they're wrapped in the mantle of one of the greatest religious systems 
and I mean that as a negative term, one of the greatest religious systems of all time, they don't want to know God. Jesus challenged them on numerous occasions. They are negative to God at God consciousness. Now, there are others who are positive to God at God consciousness, and even though they were caught up in the same religious system, because they had been positive to God at God consciousness, there was an element, small though it might have been, of objectivity in their soul, so that when Jesus performs these miracles and Jesus taught what he taught, there was something in them that clicked. And it might have taken one event, or it might have taken a thousand events, before they finally connected the dots and realized that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and who would die on the cross for the sins of the world. I don't think Thomas even realized it until the end when he said my, when he wanted to touch the, the nail prints in his hand and the sword wound in his side, and then he knelt down and said, My Lord and my God. It's very possible that not even Thomas, and of course we know Judas, went through all of this and saw all that God, that Christ had done, all of the miracles, and it is clear from numerous passages that Judas was never a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll see some of those in the coming chapters. So we see the response of positive volition here in verses 45 and 46. Many, therefore, of the Jews, and that term is a technical term by John. He's a Jew as well. It's not a negative term for or people who are Jewish, but is a term for the religious leaders, not just the Pharisees, the Sanhedrins, the members of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, as well as the, uh, uh, the scribes. These are the religious leaders. And so we read, Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him. So we see a large number who trusted in Christ as their Savior. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So you've got a small group here that's going to be a tattletale, and they're going to tattle on Jesus. Religious Religion always produces small-minded people because it operates on arrogance and legalism. So you have this group that goes off to tell the Pharisees, you don't know what Jesus did? He did it once again. He claims that He's done this miracle and He's God and He can raise people from the dead and we've just got to stop this. So they want to stir up trouble. And we see the results of that in verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Now one of the things that I want to point out here is uh, too often today, I want to jump back, I skipped over something I wanted to mention. Verse 45, when it says that they believed in Him, they are believing in a Jesus that is historically objective, a Jesus that performs objective miracles, and a Jesus who made certain claims related to His own deity. They were relating to who he was in terms of all of his essence. Now, the problem today with a lot of evangelism is that we present Jesus in some sort of subjective framework. You need Jesus because he will he'll solve the problems in your life. Jesus will make you feel better. 
we sort of present Jesus like he's a rabbit, lucky rabbit's foot or some kind of magic talisman. Uh, Jesus will solve all your problems. He will make you feel better. We, ha- we present Jesus as this psychological solution to life's problems as opposed to the Lord of the universe. And modern subjective psychological man has basically created a subjective emotional concept of Jesus in his own mind. So here we'll draw a little head figure, put a couple of ears on him, and here's his mind. This is the human viewpoint thinker, and a lot of people who are, prob- who are Christians, and they don't know anything about the Bible. And they create an image of what they think Jesus is. And so this is their own subjective concept, doesn't have anything to do with the Bible, and then they project this up into heaven, this is who Jesus is. Well, what they've done is they've created a very sophisticated idol. And just because people talk about Jesus or talk about God does not mean they're talking about the Jesus of the Bible or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are all sorts of systems out there in religious groups and Christian churches who talk about Jesus and God, but they are not the Jesus and God that are revealed in the Scriptures. So that is why it is so important to understand who Jesus is and what the Scripture teaches about Him. The people who responded to them treated this event as a historical fact. A historical fact. Scripture is always grounded in historical events. You go back into the Old Testament and you read about the flood. You read about the call of Abraham and Abraham's life and his travels from Ur the Chaldees to Haran and then over to Canaan. You read about Moses and the uh, Egyptian slavery of the Jewish people and their uh, freedom, their emancipation, and the exodus. We read about David. We read about all of the uh, various prophets and the kings of, uh, of Israel and Judah. And all of these things, everything that God taught, is taught in the framework of his objective historical events. If you remove the historical veracity of those events, then the doctrine that is taught becomes meaningless. And yet, see, that's the dangerous and subtle attack on Scripture and on history. History has meaning because it is the outworking of God's plan and purposes for mankind. History is not just a collection of random facts. Now, the problem is that that's how history is taught and that's how most of us learned history growing up, and there was no framework for understanding that there was something more to it than just a uh, random collection of uh, incidents, and so they, they lose their meaning. And once you get a culture where history is destroyed as having objective meaning, then those historical facts are subject to change. And this is called historical revisionism. And one of the earliest examples I can find of historical revisionism happened in the Bible. After Solomon died, the uh, kingship of, of Israel, of the twelve tribes, was supposed to go to his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was crowned king, but Solomon, in building the, tabern- uh, the temple and in building his own residence, which was much grander and more expensive than the temple, uh, Solomon had uh, taxed the people uh, very heavily. And so we see that the Bible is against heavy taxation. And God warned... Warned Solomon through, a, uh, I mean, warned Rehoboam through a prophet 
that if you increase the taxation on the people, then this is going to be so burdensome that it's going to create a division and you're going to, and the, the kingdom will be split in two. And that's exactly what happened. He listened, instead of listening to his older, wiser counselors, he listened to the younger counselors. He jacked up the taxation. And a man named Jeroboam, Jeroboam I, increased the ta- or led a revolt of the ten northern tribes and set up an independent nation of Israel. So there was the ten nation, uh, ten tribe nation Israel in the north and the two tribes Judah and Benjamin in the south known as Judah. What was the first thing that Jeroboam did? Well, the historical founding documents of Israel said that that um, there was supposed to be one central sanctuary in Jerusalem that if you were going to worship God, the only place you could do it was in the temple in Jerusalem. So what did Jeroboam wouldn't like that because now all the people in his part of the country, in his country, would have to go, if they're going to meet God, they've got to go down to Judah, the enemy. What do we do? Well, let's rewrite history. You know, God really didn't come down to Mount Sinai. He came down to Mount Gerizim, right here in, the, in, in Samaria. And there, that's where he told us to build the temple. Not only that, but he said that, that we're to construct an idol. We're going to construct a golden calf here to represent God, and that's where we worship. So you see, historical revisionism is not new. It's a way to control people and to propagandize a culture and to drive them away from God. And people have been using historical revisionism to uh, work out human viewpoint agendas since the Old Testament time. But the Bible is actual history. Jeroboam was rejecting the actual history of, of uh, the Old Testament. And that's what a lot of people do. And they reject the historicity historicity of much of the Gospels. That's why you get these groups like the, the uh, Jesus, uh, what do they call it, the, 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 the Jesus scholars who go around and they try to figure out what verses in the Bible Jesus actually said. And it's just an exercise in liberal arrogance and has nothing to do with the Bible because they re- they're just like the Pharisees here. They've rejected the testimony of Jesus from the beginning. And so they're going to rewrite the Gospels according to their own concepts. And this is how we see the Pharisees' response starting in verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing signs. And I want you to notice a couple of things here. How did John, never occur to you to ask the question, how did John know what went on in that meeting? They weren't present. John wasn't present. Three options, of course, God could have informed him. Second option, one I think is probably more true, either the second or third option, there were probably a few believers in that meeting. Nicodemus was probably in that meeting, and Joseph of Arimathea was probably in that meeting. And so there were either some Christians in the meeting who told John, told the disciples what went on, or later on some of those who were present in that meeting became believers and then told the story. In fact, we know that John had a somewhat intimate connection with the leadership in the Sanhedrin. In John 18:15, uh, right after the arrest of Jesus, we're told, and Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, that disciple, of course, the other disciple is sort of 
John's covert way of always referring to himself. He never uses his own name. He always refers to himself as either the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Or he refers to himself in some oblique way. So this other disciple is John. And he says, now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. So in some way, probably a family connection, John, this disciple from Galilee, was known to the high priest and had some relationship there. So John could have heard directly from Caiaphas's mouth, perhaps, what took place in the meeting. Now, in verse 47, the Pharisees convened a council, and the technical word there in the Greek is uh, the word usually translated Sanhedrin. I don't know if this is an official meeting of the Sanhedrin, but it certainly seems like they are trying to make some official pronouncements. And they say, they ask the question, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? I want you to notice that they use a present tense of the verb poieo there, which means that they are actively engaged in doing something against Jesus, and they have been. This is an ongoing process that they're trying to stop the growing movement of followers of Jesus. So they are actively engaged in trying to stop Jesus' ministry, and they have already determined that they want to kill him. And it is in this meeting that they're going to finalize their plans. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, which is probably a true statement. If it kept on, a majority of people would probably believe in him. And then they make a next statement, which is really a leap and shows the assumptions that are, that's governing their responses. They say, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, we see from this that on the one hand, those who responded positively to Jesus recognized that no one could do the things he did, as Nicodemus said, or no one could say the things he did unless God were with him. That it was obvious from his miracles that he was fulfilling all of the requisite signs of the Messiah laid out in the Old Testament. But the others couldn't accept that, so they had to offer an alternate solution. And their solution was that this guy is simply leading a political revolt. So they have interpreted everything that Jesus is doing in terms of politics. And so they come out, because they have a false interpretive framework, they're going to come out with the wrong conclusion. And their conclusion is, is that we let him go, and this continues, then the Romans, and remember when you look at the Temple Mount, here this rectangle describes the Temple. In one corner of the Temple Mount was the... uh, Mark Antony Barracks, the fortress of Antonio, named for Mark Antony, and it overlooked the courtyard of the temple, so that everything the Jews did was under the watchful eye of the soldiers of Rome. The Middle East had been a hotbed of insurrection and all kinds of revolts. You had the zealots and various other groups who were trying to, who were antagonistic to Rome, and so. They had a strong military presence. And so the Sanhedrin is interpreting this. I want you to understand this is tremendous irony here. They're saying we have a problem. The problem is political and the problem is Rome. Now, as we we have studied, there are only two solutions basically to any, any problem. 
no matter whether it's spiritual or whether it's economic or whatever, there's only two solutions. There's the human viewpoint solution and there is the divine viewpoint solution. Now, they have defined the problem as political and because they're operating on human viewpoint reasoning, they're going to misinterpret the analysis and they're going to come up with a false solution. And that solution is to kill Jesus. What they're saying is if we take this solution, it'll take the political heat off our back. I want you to watch what happens. Because they've identified the problem wrong and they've identified the solution in human viewpoint, what they're going to get by applying their solution is what they're trying to avoid. And the principle is, is that in life, whenever we try to solve our problems through a human viewpoint solution, ultimately, what we're trying to avoid is what we're going to get. The only true solution is the divine viewpoint solution. Because if they had allowed Jesus to continue to such a degree that there was, let's say, a positive response to the gospel, so that the majority of the people became believers then Jesus would have indeed established his kingdom as a political kingdom. He would have worked out the plan of salvation and died for sins in some way. But he would have died and he would have established his kingdom at the first advent if they had accepted him. And he would have been able to overthrow Rome then, just as he will overthrow the revived Roman Empire at the end of the tribulation. On the other hand, by exercising their human viewpoint solution, the result is that they, they kill Jesus and then Rome comes back and Rome destroys Israel completely in 70 A.D. and wipes out the Jews and removes them from the land. So in human viewpoint, we often think or fear a certain consequence, yet it is only because we operate on human viewpoint that we get the consequence we actually fear. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice the hypocrisy. They're not really concerned about the nation. They're concerned about losing their place in the nation, and they're concerned about the fact that they're going to lose their position of power and their wealth. Many of these men, like Caiaphas, were really running a racket. They were in charge. Remember back at the very beginning, we'll see the episode occur again. We'll see back at the beginning... Back in John 2, that Jesus cast all the money changers out of the temple. What was going on was you had all this commercial operation taking place in Solomon's portico where they were selling the birds and they were selling the animals and they were changing money as people came from other parts of the empire and they didn't have Jewish currency. They would exchange money at a high rate of return. So they had a great little business going and the uh, Caiaphas and some of the other religious leaders at the top we're getting a kickback. And so they're getting wealthy off of all of this religious operation, and they don't want to lose it. So they're motivated by their own gain. So their concern is not really what's best for the nation, but their concern is what is best for their own pocketbook. Now, verse 49, But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Now, I want you to notice that he's high priest, but he's not a believer. 
It was not a requirement in the Old Testament for either a priest or a high priest to be a believer. We don't have time to look at the requirements now, but if you go back and you read all of the requirements, they had to be members of the tribe of Levi. They had to fit certain physical qualifications. There couldn't be certain blemishes. They couldn't have been uh, uh, castrated. They couldn't be a eunuch. They couldn't have certain other physical problems. They just had to be members of the tribe of Levi. That was the only qualification. And they could serve as a priest, and then they had to be a member of the family or a descendant of Aaron in order to be the high priest. And so Caiaphas fits the physical qualifications, and he's high priest, but he is not a believer. I want you to see this because we're going to see something unusual but not uncommon happen in this incident. Caiaphas says, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die, hupere plus the genitive, as a substitute for the people. Same phraseology we have in describing the gospel, that Christ died as a substitute for our sins. That one man should die for the people, that the whole nation should not Perish. That's the same word that's used in John 3.16. If we, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. Same word that's used there, apolumi. Now this He did not say on His own initiative. Notice that. Here's this unbeliever. And literally in the Greek it has the reflexive pronoun here, autos, A-U-T-O-S, meaning He did not say this from, it's in the genitive, from himself. If he didn't say it, if it didn't originate within him, where did it originate? God can make stones speak. He made Balaam's ass speak. God can prophesy and communicate inerrant prophecy even through the mouth of an unbeliever who is antagonistic to the entire plan and program of God. See, this just substantiates, you know, some people ask, why is it that, that, how would, why is it that Jesus would choose an unbeliever like Judas to be a disciple? He must have been a believer. Well, no, God had to fulfill certain requirements from the Old Testament related to someone who would betray him. And God's plan is never so limited that he can't use unbelievers for his own plans and purposes. And here he's using Caiaphas specifically to articulate a prophecy, and it's just another example of God's grace before judgment. He says it's expedient for you that one man should die for the people, and Jesus would die as a substitute for the people. He would pay the penalty for our sins on the cross, and that the whole nation should not perish. Now, the interesting thing is physically and in a political sense the nation did perish because they did not believe. But in an ultimate eternal sense, many within the nation would not perish eternally because they had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year. Notice how John explains this. He explains the fact that he was able to say this because he was high priest. God spoke through the priesthood whether or not they were believers. 
Because he was high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. John wants to make sure we don't miss the point that this was clear. It was a prophecy, and it was clearly articulated by an unbeliever in an antagonistic situation. That Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only. Notice how he builds even more. Not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This reminds us of what Jesus said in talking about the sheep, that he would take some sheep came from this flock, and other sheep came from another flock. And this, of course, refers to Gentiles. And so this is merely an allusion to the church, that in the church age there would be a new, unique spiritual body, the body of Christ called the church, that was made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers, but in the church, Jewish and Gentile ethnicity is no longer relevant. For in the church there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, male bond or slave. We are all one in Christ. And the point of that is simply to say, not that there aren't going to be any more slaves or free people, or not that there aren't going to be any more men and women, but that those factors are no longer issues in our relationship to God as they were in the Old Testament. So there is an allusion here, a very subtle prophecy and inclusion and reference to the coming church age. And then John concludes by saying, so from that day on, they plan together to kill him. So they are specifically entering into a uh, conspiracy here to kill Jesus. Verse 54, Jesus therefore, notice the conclusion, Jesus knows in his omniscience, he is the God-man, undiminished deity and true humanity, united in one person forever. And in his deity, he knows what's going on. And he is going to make sure he's going to be crucified at the right place at the right time. So to prevent this from happening prematurely, he is going to remove himself from public exposure. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. Now, if we look on a map of Israel, which I thought I had one up here with me, but there it is. Look on the map of Israel. Jerusalem is located right here, and about 21 miles to the north, northeast, between Bethel and Jericho, out here along this ridge line, there was a very ancient and small rural village called Ephraim. And that is where Jesus has gone in order to remove himself from public exposure. There's not much left there in recent years. They've discovered a small archaeological remnant of that city, and so there's a a tell there now where they're conducting a dig. But it was just a small rural village where Jesus could hide out until it was time for the Passover. Verse 55, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, why does John make this point? They're coming to Jerusalem to purify themselves. They had to go through a cleansing ritual to make sure that, and of course what that symbolized is that before they could worship God, they had to be cleansed from their sins. So it's comparable, or or it speaks of, it's a, a training aid to help us understand 
the importance of confession of sin. So the Jews go up for Passover to purify themselves. Therefore, they were seeking for Jesus. So all these people have heard about Jesus. They've heard about the healings. They've heard about the controversy. And as tens of thousands, they estimate there could be as many as 150,000 people swell the population of Jerusalem during the feast times. As all these people came into town, they began to ask, where's Jesus? What's going on? What what have we heard about Jesus? Where is this man? And so there's a heightened expectation among the crowd to find out about Jesus and what's going on. And he says, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? People are questioning. They're asking each other, is he going to be here? Where is he? Why hasn't he shown himself? Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Okay. What they're basically legislating is if you have anything to do with Jesus, you're a criminal. So you, to avoid becoming a criminal, you have to tell us where he is. They're executing a little uh, uh, totalitarian policy here to control the populace and to make sure they get the man that they want. So they're going to make anyone who helps Jesus a co-conspirator and guilty of sedition. So that placed all of his friends in a position of criminality. Now look at chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, so he bides his time and he waits to the proper time. Now this is going to get into some very significant prophetic fulfillment, so I'm going to stop this morning before we get to verse 12. But he's six days before the Passover, so this is uh, late in the week before the Passover, probably a Thursday or Friday. We'll get into some chronology and I'll probably say, say some things about chronology that rattle your cage, but it uh, rattles mine too, so we'll all just have to deal with it. And we'll get into that. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Notice how all of this connects. To Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So John is specifically connecting for us these events with what just transpired. Now, everybody was going to Jerusalem to purify themselves. Keep that in mind. As part of Jewish ritual, you could not have contact with a diseased person, a leper, and you could not have contact with a dead person, or you would be physically unclean, or ceremonially unclean, and you could not participate in the Passover. And I think a month had to go by before you could bring your cleansing sacrifice. Now, notice this. Remember when we saw the episode with the resuscitation of Lazarus, that it was Martha that said, Lord, he stinketh. And everybody thinks that, well, you know, she's just saying, don't open the grave. This is really going to be bad if you pull back that gravestone. He's already, the body's corrupting, we're going to smell it. That's not what she's talking about. She knew, and apparently they were only within two or three weeks of Passover. Jesus wasn't out in Ephraim, Ephraim for long. She knew that if Jesus came in contact with that corrupt body, that he couldn't participate in Passover. This is what's coming. So we have to understand these Jewish dynamics going on behind the scene. Now they come together in Bethany, and there's going to be a dinner party. And we don't know much about the dinner party here in this particular passage, but it is referenced in uh, Mark chapter 14. <coughs> And there we discover that it was at the home, not at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, because if it was at their home, 
we would expect Lazarus to be there. He says Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table before him. So if it was in their home, he wouldn't have to tell us those things. That would be just sort of understood. But it's not at their home. It's at the home of Simon the leper. So in the context of everyone going to Jerusalem to be purified, of course Simon had been healed by this time, Jesus is associating with a leper who's been healed and a dead corpse that's been resuscitated. I just love the way John interweaves these interesting ironies throughout the Gospel. Jesus is just going contradictory. His very practice is a slap in the face to the legalistic ritualism of the Pharisees. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary. Now this shows Mary's orientation to the Lord and her grace orientation and puts herself in a very humble position. This humility is always a factor in grace orientation. Mary therefore took a pound a very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now this is something that we've heard this story, we've read about it. It doesn't impact us. This was a powerful situation. In the first place, under Judaism, a woman would never be allowed to discuss, talk with a man in in a situation like this. Only a woman who was considered to be a a prostitute would, would do this. Rabbis were even forbidden to speak to their wives on a public street because somebody might misunderstand and think that that he was involved in some kind of immoral affair. Not only that, but in Jewish culture, and you can go back and substantiate this in Numbers chapter 5, a woman always wore her hair curled up, braided up, and on top of her head as a sign of her submission to her husband. Only an adulterous woman ever let her hair down. The only time a woman would ever have her hair down was when she was in privacy in an intimate situation with her husband. No other time would a woman let her hair down. So she, by letting her hair down, she is demonstrating her submission. Her love to the Lord, it is a profound scenario and anybody with a legalistic bone in their body would just be vibrating all over the place. And so it's a sign of grace versus legalism here. And she takes out this this nard, which had to be imported. It's a very expensive perfume. And she's using pure nard, so this is comparable to to a cologne. This is not a perfume. It's not an aftershave. It hasn't been diluted. It is the pure essence of nard, and it's said to be very costly. The price is given in verse 5 of 300 denarii, which is roughly a denarii was equivalent to a day's wage. So I think in our society we could say that this would be equivalent to almost uh, 12 months or 10 months worth of, worth of pay. So, you know, this is worth $25,000, $35,000 in today's market. So she's just going to take this small bottle 
of nard with about a, about 12 ounces of perfume. And she's just going to break it and smear it all over the Lord's feet. And then she's going to wipe it off with her hair. This is phenomenal. $20,000, $30,000, just like that. But it's an act of worship. You see, in grace orientation, we don't hold on to our own. We realize everything we have is from the Lord, and so we're willing to give it back. It's a principle of grace giving. That's why grace giving is always should be much more generous than the tithers. You know, the tithers are saying, we're going to give God only 10%. You know, in grace giving, we realize everything's the Lord, so we need to be generous. It's more than that. It's whatever, however the Lord has prospered us. It's a, it's a, uh, there, there's a ratio there. If the Lord hasn't prospered you very much, and obviously you can't give very much. But if the Lord has prospered you, and that doesn't mean that you are competing with Donald Trump for a, a financial position in the country, it just means that, that God's taken care of you, and so you are willing to give of what God has given you because you realize that your bank account really has God's name on it and not your name on it. And this is Mary's response, her grace orientation to the Lord. And you see the contrast with Judas. Judas is the treasurer and foreshadows probably many treasurers of churches over the church age who got into trouble because of their uh, uh, greed and their attitude towards money. Judas, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold? He always takes the self-righteous route here. We could have sold it and given it to the poor. Now, we know from Judas that he would have sold it and pocketed half the money. Judas was in it for what he was going to get out of it, and so he adopts this pseudo-compassion, which is typical of unbelievers and typical of legalism as well. And notice Jesus' response. He says, leave her alone down in verse 7. Leave her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. This is the first reference, and obviously Mary does this. Jesus ties this in because he realizes Mary knows he's about to die. This whole episode, nard, was used in preparing bodies for embalming. And so this whole episode foreshadows the fact that Jesus is about to die. Mary knows he is about to die. And so she is doing this as her act of devotion in preparing him before his death. And then Jesus makes the profound statement in verse 8 in explaining his statement about the money. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now this is a slap in the face to every socialist, liberal, economic agenda that's ever come down. And that's why liberals really don't like Jesus. Because Jesus is saying, look, people, people are poor. Why are people poor? You have to look, the Bible has a very definite theology of economics. People are poor because of bad decisions. People are poor because of a lack of minus responsibility. Now, Jesus is not making a harsh statement here. He is not condemning them for being poor. He is making a realistic observation There will always be the poor. Now, that gives people the opportunity to share and have compassion and to take care of them. But they are poor not because because it just happened that way by chance, 
but they are poor because of bad decisions on their part, on the government's part or whatever. But that's not going to change until Jesus comes back and it's not the agenda of the church. It's not the agenda of Christianity and it shouldn't be the agenda of government in this age to solve the problem of poverty because it won't ever be solved this side of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because poverty has its roots basically in a sinful society. And as long as people have sin natures, we are going to have sinful societies and people are going to make bad decisions from a position of weakness and they are either going to uh, be irresponsible in their use of money or they're going to be irresponsible in their use of their talents and abilities and not get an education and not get a job or they're going to be involved in a culture or a country that is under divine discipline for negative volition and consequently they're going to suffer economic adversity because of that. But Jesus recognizes this and this is not neither is this an excuse to ignore and be insensitive to those who are impoverished but it is simply a statement of realism that the poverty problem will never be resolved. Now let's look again at the reaction, verse 9. The great multitude of the Jews learned that he was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only. In other words, they're out to see the show. Like a lot of people in a lot of churches, they're not there to see and hear about Jesus. They want to see the miracles and the healings and all of the other uh, hoopla that goes on that is usually has nothing to do with Christianity. They wanted to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. See, they realize they've got to solve this whole problem. It's not just a problem of Jesus. It's a problem that we can't let the evidence hang around either. So we've got to get rid of Jesus and get rid of the evidence that he claimed to be the Messiah. So we're going to have to put Lazarus to death too. Verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. You see, the signs and evidences that Jesus gave are valid evidences for who he is and for his claims to Christianity, and many believe. But facts alone are not the issue. So when you witness to people, sometimes it's very frustrating, and we've all had those experiences. We try to explain, and, they'll, and we get responses, well, other people have other views. And how do you know that really happened? And how do you know that these writers of the Scripture didn't just make these things up? And we get asked all these kinds of questions and our tendency is to think, if I just had the magic bullet, if I just had that singular argument, if I just could convince them, and as soon, all of a sudden we find ourselves strategically under pressure to try to find something and to do something to convince people we're right. And at that point we're on the verge of making some serious tactical errors because facts are not the issue. Facts are important. We have to explain the facts of the gospel. The historical evidences of Christianity sometimes are very important to bring them in as, as to correlate what we're saying. But the issue is volition. And ultimately, the issue is the sovereign executive responsibility of God the Holy Spirit in evangelism to make the gospel clear. Now, that's not an excuse for us to be unprepared intellectually to give the gospel. But it does tell us that ultimately it's not our responsibility to answer all the questions and to present an airtight argument. Because even when Jesus was on the earth and even when he presented airtight arguments, they were rejected. Because the issue is volition. The issue is not your ability to convince people. 
So that ought to cause everyone to breathe a sigh of relief, relax, not put yourself under so much pressure, and avail yourself of any and every opportunity that comes along to explain the gospel to people. Because the issue is eternal life. Those who believe on him are not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the privilege we've had to gather together this morning and study your word. To see the clarity of the gospel presented in the gospel of John. To realize the issue is Jesus Christ. It's not works. It's not our efforts. It's not moral reformation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who is unsure, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would know from this clear study of your word this morning that the issue is their decision. Do they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or not? The issue is not works. The issue is not money. The issue is not church attendance. The issue is not culture, background, or anything else. It is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things that we have learned today, to see how they apply to our lives and to challenge our thinking. In Jesus' name, amen.